Goddag og velkommen til Langsomme Samtaler. Mit navn er Rune Lykkeberg, og det her er den sidste episode, inden vi går på sommerferie. Jan Werner Møller er en god ven af Dagbladet Information, en særdeles god ven af Informationsforlag og en forfatter, hvis bøger vi er meget, meget glade for at have udgivet. Hans hovedværk og absolut vigtigste bog er Kampen om demokratiet, politiske idéer i det 20. århundredes Europa, som er en blotlægning af de konflikter, der opstod, da man i det 20. århundrede udviklede demokratiet, som vi kender det i dag. Det er en afdækning af, hvordan der i demokratiets navn opstod helt forskellige styreformer. Den ene kalder han for begrænset demokrati. Det er den, vi ser i USA og Tyskland og EU, hvor domstolen og juristerne har relativt meget magt over lovgivningsprocessen og det politiske arbejde. Den anden model kalder han for det parlamentariske demokrati. Det er den, vi har i Skandinavien og i Storbritannien, hvor parlamentarikerne har relativt meget magt, og juristerne har relativt lidt magt. Pointen i kampen om demokratiet er, at selve den konflikt mellem det, man kunne kalde det juridiske aristokrati og det politiske demokrati, driver vores institutioner fremad og er med til at forme dem. Og når det politiske aristokrati stivner i teknokrati, så får man populister som modstandere. Populister, der hævder, at demokratiet er blevet stjålet fra os. Vi fik lovet, at vi skulle være med til at bestemme. Nu føler vi os afmægtige. Vi føler os underkastet fremmede herrer, som vi ikke selv har valgt. Og nu kommer populisterne og vil tage det tilbage. Det bliver også udgangspunktet for Jan Werner Müllers næste bog, som er den lille bog om populisme. Hvis tese er, at populisterne reagerer på en oplevelse af underskud af demokrati i demokratiet. De hævder, at de taler på vegne af folket, og folket er altid bestemt ental. Folket har en stemme, og den går gennem populisterne. Og det kan være alle fra Hugo Chavez til Donald Trump til Marine Le Pen til Viktor Orbán. Deres præmis er, at de taler med folkets sande stemme, og dem, der er imod dem, er imod folket. Og det er ikke bare en systemkritik, slår Jan Werner Müller fast. Det er også en måde at reagere på. Senest har han udgivet bogen Demokratiets Styre, som er skrevet til krisefornemmelsen efter valget af Donald Trump og efter de forskellige politiske opbrud, vi har set rundt omkring i den vestlige verden. Hvor Jan Werner Müllers grundpoeng er, at demokratiet har altid været kendetegnet ved uvisthed og usikkerhed og åbenhed. En vækst mellem håbløshed og håb. Og det vi oplever i øjeblikket, er ikke demokratiets undergang. Det er demokratiets eksperimenterende med sig selv. En læreproces, der kan drive os helt af helvede til, men som også kan drive os fremad. Jan Werner Müller er det, som man roligt kan kalde for en ven af demokratiet. Han er meget optaget af truslerne mod demokratiet og de mørke kræfter rundt omkring, som vil undergrave det. Jeg er også selv en ven af demokratiet, vil jeg sige, ligesom vi vel alle sammen er det, men jeg er det i langt mindre grad af de institutioner, som vi har i dag. Jeg holder meget af det demokratiske princip, som er, du skal ikke finde dig i, at nogen bestemmer over dig imod dit samtykke. Og konsekvensen af det princip, jeg vil ikke have, at der er nogen, der bestemmer over mig, som jeg ikke anerkender, den er, at vi må kunne finde ud af en måde at reagere på i fællesskab. Fra det, jeg vil ikke bestemmes over, skal der opstå et stærkt vi. For mig er det det demokratiske princip. Og derfor er der for mig at se altid et underskud af demokrati i institutionerne. Jeg er mere på princippets side, end jeg er på institutionernes side. Jeg ser institutionerne som de forløbige realiseringer af princippet. Jan Werner Müller derimod ser det, ser det sådan, at institutionerne skal udvikles Indefra, og dem, der imod institutionerne i dag, i meget høj grad er en fare for vores demokrati. 
Jeg havde fornøjelsen her i sommer af at tale en hel aften, eller i hvert fald halvanden time med Jan Werner Møller til et arrangement i det Kongelige Bibliotek i, i Diamanten foran et stort publikum. Og jeg stiller ham i starten af samtalen spørgsmålet om, hvordan han vil sige til alle de unge mennesker, der siger, at demokratiet har jo givet os klimakrisen. Demokratiet så til, mens klimaforandringer eskalerede, og vi ikke gjorde noget. Hvordan kan man hylde institutioner? Hvordan kan man forsvare institutioner, som har været ansvarlige for dette kolossale svigt? Han svarer først én ting i starten af samtalen, nemlig at der ikke findes bedre styreformer. Der er ikke nogen andre styreformer, der rigtig har leveret på den grønne omstilling, eller som har gjort det bedre. Men det er for Jan Werner Møller et utilfredsstillende svar, og det kan jeg se på ham under hele samtalen. Og til allersidst, der vender han faktisk tilbage og leverer et langt bedre svar om, hvad der faktisk er den virkelige forhåbning for de unge, og hvad det er for en moralsk revolution, der skal til for at forny vores demokrati. Så i den samtale, der følger, starter vi med et forsvar for institutionerne, så eksperimenterer vi med dem, og så til sidst kommer der en moralsk udfordring. God fornøjelse. Well, thank you for coming, not out, but coming inside tonight, on a night where a lot of people, they would be outside. But it's good to, to see so many of you in here on a summer night. Uh, and thank you so much for coming here again. You've been part, Jan, of our common reflections about democracy for almost a decade now. I know contesting democracy was earlier than that. But for the last 10 years, you've been very important for our discussions about democracy, our understandings of the contradictions of democracy, and in particular, of course, also the analysis of, of populism. And, and I was wondering the other day that I never asked you, how did you originally come to work with the democracy? How did you come to take such an interest in this? I don't know, we should call it a virtue or an institution or a way of life. First of all, thank you for having me back. It's always an honor and a pleasure to, to be here. And also thanks to the audience. Uh, this feels like cruel and unusual punishment <laughs> on a night on a night like this. How did I get interested in this? Um, so I first wrote a more historical book about democracy uh, for which I basically sort of prepared the ground from the mid to late 90s onwards, um, partly because at that time I had the sense that sometimes the most recent history is the most difficult to understand and the easiest to forget. And I felt that already at the end of the 20th century we were getting lots of not very plausible stories about what had really happened with democracy in the 20th century. And beyond that, I also thought it was important at the time to make us as Europeans understand that our understandings of democracy had evolved very differently and that we were all using the same word. Uh, we were celebrating you know, the supposed victory of democracy at the end of the 20th century. But of course, our trajectories had often been very, very different. And I thought it was important to tell a history of that set of developments. But to be sure, I did not foresee at that time that these national understandings of democracy, basically soon enough in our century now, would become weaponized. Because, of course, many political leaders today have said, you know, our particular national understanding of democracy means, you know, take your pick. We have to leave the EU or we have to stay within the EU, but we're going to build more or less autocratic structures in our country. Um, all of that uh, was not clear to me, and I dare say it wasn't clear to many of us, and has been, of course, one of the big shocks and, and disillusionments um, 
in this, in this century. I was born in, you're a little older than I am, you're from 1970, and I was born in 1974, and as a person of the left, I was, I, I grew up intellectually in the 90s, where democracy was pretty much part of a package, which included uh, a certain understanding of markets and protectionism, would almost equal nationalism, uh, and liberal democracy and capitalism went hand in hand at, at the time, and I felt that when I grew up, that, that At the time, it was becoming an, if not neoliberal, at least a liberal slogan, uh, democracy. And also, it was very much defined by its enemies. Of course, uh, of course, of course, communism. But also, after communism, it was fundamentalism and, 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 and Islamism. So it's not that I was against the, the, the democracy, but I was always a little... Relief to hear that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, this is a coming out party. No, I never liked it. No, <laughs> no but, but I was skeptical about it because it was a part of a power language that was very dominant at the time. Are you for or are you against the, the democracy? How did you experience this Jargon der Demokratie, to say it in German? So I would distinguish two things. Um, it's very common today to start an op-ed or even a book by saying, oh, in the 90s, we had all these illusions, we thought history had ended, and so on. I don't think people really bought into that specific idea <laughs> all, that, all that much. Um, and at this point, it's a little bit cheap to say, ah, oh, look how wrong Fukuyama was, naive American, and, and so on. But I think there was a specific illusion around at the time, and it's one that I think stuck with us for a long time, and it's one that I think some of us maybe still have today. And that was the assumption that, yes, democracies actually make mistakes all the time. It's not a perfect system. But democracy is the only system where you can learn from mistakes, where you can admit mistakes, where you can throw out the government, of course, all this kind of textbook wisdom about what makes democracy, democracy good. And conversely, the assumption was all the autocrats are going to end like the Soviet Union in 1991 mm. because they don't understand their own societies, They can't learn from their mistakes. Of course, they can't admit any mistakes to begin with. And I think this had a long-term legacy of underestimating, aspiring and then practicing autocrats in our century. That there was still deep down, I think, a sort of assumption that this is going to solve itself. They're going to all fail in power. And I think you heard echoes of this very strongly last year, when after this initial shock, a lot of observers said, look, Putin doesn't even understand, you know, what's really going on in his own army. Uh, he's really cut off from what is happening in the, I was, gonna, I was tempted to say the Soviet Union, but no Russia, of course, <laughs> um, because the same sort of arguments came back. I'm not saying they're all wrong. I'm not saying we should kind of go to the other extreme and now start assuming that all autocrats are invincible and they've perfected some new kind of knowledge about how to govern and, and so on. But the sort of assumption that, if you want to use very highfalutin language, that democracies have a sort of inbuilt epistemic advantage. I think that was very strong, and I dare say that still floats around as a kind of idea. You know, I would, it, it definitely does, and I think we also see that, that autocrats, they're very good at learning from each other. It's almost like there's an international of, of, uh, of, of right-wing autocrats. They're, they're learning from each other and kind of gathering a pool of knowledge of, of practices. Do you agree with that? I think you're absolutely right. I think it partly might explain the fact that if you look around the world today and you look at, just to take a number of uh, random but all more or less equally depressing examples, 
Uh, you, look Turkey, you look at Turkey, you look at Hungary, you look at Poland, you look at India. Of course, you would soon enough conclude that how these figures govern looks very, very similar. And I think sometimes people conclude from that that these phenomena must have the same cause because the outcomes are so similar. And of course, you know, we all, even though we also always like to say that, oh, populists are the great simplifiers and they don't understand the complex reality. <laughs> But, you know, hey, if somebody comes along and gives us, you know, the root cause of right-wing populism around the globe, ideally in 140 characters or maximum 280 characters, and tells us, oh, it's all the economy or it's all immigration and so on, we would love that because we also love simple explanations if they, if they, sound, if they sound plausible. But I think the fact that they look similar has much more to do with what you just mentioned, that they learn from each other, that they can basically copy certain practices. Once somebody has figured out how, for instance, to do a facially relatively harmless or neutral law that can be weaponized against non-governmental organizations, that can be used to undermine, destroy civil society, that's not so difficult to, to, to copy, let's say. So there's a lot of learning going on, um, and maybe there's a different kind of learning in addition to that, which is a certain learning from history. So again, in the 90s, I think it would have been very plausible to say, look, we all want to learn from history. I mean, nobody's against that. But very often the assumption was, to put it very bluntly, only good Democrats learn from history. What about aspiring autocrats who also learn from history? And what do they learn? Well, among other things, I think they've learned how to develop governing techniques where they get what they want in terms of creating situations where a real turnover of power is virtually impossible, but without the level of repression and without producing the kinds of images that would, every, that would remind everybody domestically, but also internationally, immediately of the 20th, of the 20th century. So ideally, if you're an aspiring autocrat today, you don't want to produce the kinds of images that eventually, after an initial phase where things looked very different, someone like Erdogan in Turkey has produced. By now, you know, it, it, people kind of know that this is a pretty repressive regime. If you put 50,000 people in, in, in prison, uh, if you produce lots of images of the police beating people up, that's a different thing than the early years where people still said, this is maybe a great reformer, Uh, and the kind of situation which you know, someone like Orban still has, who, you know, who will basically tell outsiders, look, come, come to Hungary, you know, easy jet to Hungary, because half of Europe is there anyway, if they're under 30, having a fantastic time in a wonderfully hedonistic city. Are you telling me this is fascism? Come on, you know, it's such a nice place, and so on. So I think that's ideally the kind of sweet spot in which a lot of these aspiring or practicing autocrats would be, but it's partly against the background of having learned from the past that you can get a lot what you want without having to basically be as repressive as many dictatorships were in the 20th, 20th century. So again, it's a kind of disillusionment about what learning can really mean and who actually really is capable of learning. It, it strikes me, <clears throat> me always in your books that you speak of democracy as something as an end in itself, something that is positive. That, that, um, and I speak with a lot of young people Around the, around the newspaper and especially ecological activists. And, and they say, well, democracy, you were celebrating this as the best form of government ever. You, were, you, you, you defended against all its adversaries. But when we look at back at the last 30 or 40 years of democracy, 
This is when we lost the battle against climate change. You were celebrating a, a, a kind of government that, that let us down in a way that's hard to compare to earlier political failures. And you said, well, good thing about democracy is that you can learn from your mistake, there's, there's accountability, but we just don't have the time for that. Why, why do you keep celebrating democracy like that? What would be your response to these young people? Two things. So there are intrinsic justifications for democracy, as you say, it's a good thing in and of itself, and the instrumental ones where you basically say it's good because it gets us certain results. If you only have the second one, of course, you're very vulnerable to a situation where somebody proves to you that actually autocracies are doing a better job because, you know, they get things done more quickly, more efficiently, and so on. Um, empirically, this view, I think, is clearly false. There's no evidence that autocracies can deal with climate or many other challenges in a, in a better way. Um, and those who are even tempted by the idea I think would have to explain how if you basically hand all, hand all the power over to one person or some kind of politburo or your eco-dictator or whoever you think is the right person, why that wouldn't have exactly immediately all the pathological outcomes that we tend to associate with concentrations of power, even if initially maybe it would have looked like these people are idealists or they want the right things and, and so on. So that's one thing I would say. Uh, which is, of course, a relatively weak thing to say. I mean, you know, especially young, passionate people are not going to be very impressed if an old guy says, oh, but the alternatives are even worse. Um, <laughs> so what about the intrinsic part? Um, I think that remains important to stress, that obviously our democracies are far, far, far from perfect, but they remain the only systems where you can say people are meant to be free and equal and relate to each other as free and equal people, which means they should be able to see each other in the eye. There are no sort of inbuilt hierarchies. There is no kind of scraping in, in front of the powerful. We all know that, of course, in our day-to-day -day lives, there's plenty of scraping in front of the powerful. This is not, you know, society-wide the reality. But the promise is there. And since democracy, as you also say, is always a matter of evolving practices, and provides its own resources for criticizing its shortcomings, there is still, at the risk of sounding overly Panglossian and pretending that everything always gets better, it obviously doesn't, but the resources are there to improve. And in that sense, I think we should not give up on that advantage. I mean, this is, I think, one problem with the rhetoric of the American president, who, as you all know, has basically from day one in office been saying, you know, the big clash of our, of our era is between democracy and autocracy. And then he always adds immediately, and democracies have to deliver. They have to deliver for, you know, the middle class, which in the American context is, of course, a euphemism for basically workers. All of that is, of course, correct on one level. But on one level, it's also strange that he basically gives up this intrinsic view of democracy immediately and basically enters the territory on which, to put it bluntly, the Chinese government wants to fight. Maybe you remember that when Biden had his first democracy summit in 2021, um, Beijing also offered this sort of policy paper where they said, actually, we have a better understanding of democracy. We have this thing called, you know, whole process people's democracy, which strangely has never caught on as an international slogan. Um, <laughs> but it was, of course, a way of saying, look, we deliver results. And... Of course, they also had an easy time by saying, you know, look at, look at the U.S., January 6th, you know, rising inequality and so on. Um, that doesn't mean they're right. 
All I'm saying is, I think one should never, especially if no one forces one to do so, simply give up this deeper normative justification of democracy that relates it back to freedom and equality. Um, and then we also have to talk about results, of course. But that other part remains very, very important too. It, it was in the 90s, and I think it's been, it was of course also like that during the Cold War that you would define democracy through its opposites, that we are not what, what they are. This is a place where you can vote, where you can walk for free, and we're, we're not putting high fences around our countries. They are, they are the big prisons. We are, we, we are freedom. But I felt in the 90s that there was a celebration of democracy as the opposite of autocracy that kind of prevented a generation of thinkers and politicians from exploring democracy as a kind of experiment and developing new techniques of governing together that we were, we're, we're kind of with, I mean, I, I definitely agree with you with, with the democracy as a principle, as a process, and as a way of living together. And I would always tell the young people, well, you like feminism, you like anti-racist movements, you like critical movements, they only have a place in democracy. They, they, they're appealing to, but I've, I felt that, that there was a lack of experimentation within democracy and a lack of understanding how different it could be, how we could, how we could exercise power differently together. I think it's true that back then, and in many instances since, democracies have defaulted into something that one may as, may, may as well call technocracy of sorts. And it's also still remarkable how today those who, in one way or another, want to criticize populists and argue against populism kind of default into something that can sound very technocratic. The kind of rhetoric that says, you know, we have the truth, we have expertise. Again, they are the great simplifiers. They're crazy. They make, you know, idiotic promises. Once they get into government, they will automatically fail and, and so on. Um, this was very prevalent in, in the US under Trump, for instance, that, you know, basically people simply said, look, whatever they say, we know is sort of from the get-go, we know is irrational or, you know, kind of doesn't have to be taken seriously. Um, they're always lying, so a well-known American newspaper, as soon as you open it up in your browser, or, you know, we pop up, you know, if you care about the truth, yeah. uh, subscribe today. Um, the truth was always at a discount every day, uh, fortunately. <laughs> and you just felt, look, I mean, this is, of course, on one level, it's not completely wrong, but it's also strangely comfortable to think that, okay, we kind of own the truth in a certain way. Our side always has, has, has expertise. And if you think back to the Euro crisis, again, one of these things that, you know, sometimes can now sound like ancient history to some people, uh, even though the consequences, of course, go on in Southern Europe as we, as we speak, um, that was sort of very much the pattern, that you would have this sort of fateful opposition of, for shorthand, technocracy and populism. You would have one European leader in particular who would say there is no alternative, Uh, you would have plenty of economists who would say, look, if you disagree with us, you basically reveal yourself to be irrational. Uh, there's no debate here, no disagreement. And of course, this on one level provided a wonderful opening for populists to then say, what do you mean democracy without alternatives? What do you mean democracy without choice? Uh, what about, you know, where are the people in all this? And then a sort of really very problematic vicious circle emerged because then the more successful populists became, 
the more technocrats would double down, basically saying, look, as soon as people get to decide, they do crazy stuff. They do Brexit, you know, they elect Trump, you know, all these, all these things. So ideally, even less people power, which of course would help the populists again, who would say, look, you know, they want to, you know, have, have you, you know, decide even less on our common, common fate. And at the end of the day, just for shorthand, um, and feel free obviously to come back to this, um, even though the two phenomena look so different, so technocracy on the one hand and populism on the other, they actually had something very much in common, which is what I would call a certain kind of anti-pluralism or a certain tendency to shut down debate. With the technocrats, if you disagree, you've revealed yourself to be irrational. With populists, if you criticize us, you probably are a traitor to the people, you don't really belong to the people, there's no debate there either. And everything that we would kind of include in our maybe overly conventional understanding of democracy, which is choices, party politics, ongoing debates where people kind of respect each other's positions, uh, where they don't simply shut the other side up by saying you're illegitimate because you're a traitor or you're illegitimate because all your ideas are irrational. All that kind of was squeezed out. And that's a bad thing for democracy. It, I think it's a... Uh, when, when we, and, uh, there were, there's definitely been this, the populists saying, we are the many, and, 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 and the liberals, for, just a shorthand, for, for one position. They wouldn't say we are the few, but they would say we are the truth. Uh, so you have this dialectic. And I was wondering, when you look at it like this, would you then say that the battle against, or the struggle with, or the conflict with populism, is that a conflict within democracy? Is, is that, is that a, a position within democracy, or is that a position outside of, of, of democracy? Is it in the realm of Islamism, fundamentalism, communism, fascism earlier, or is it, uh, or is it a political party? So forgive me for being slightly pedantic. I think Please. one first has to kind of clarify what one means by populism. My understanding, for better or for worse, is that this is a matter of actors who in one form or another claim that they and only they represent what they very often call the real people, in quotation marks, or also the silent majority, in, in, quotation, in quotation marks, with the, well, on the one and obvious consequence, that they will then simply say that all other contenders for power are fundamentally illegitimate, which means it's never just about a disagreement in matters of policy or even in matters of value, because that's completely normal in a democracy, maybe ideally even, even productive. No, for populists, it's always a matter of basically right away saying their opponents are all bad characters, they're all corrupt. So if you think back to, I think one of the last times we were in this room together, <laughs> um, the election campaign in the United States in 2016, Trump was of course an extreme but he was not truly an exception. What he said about his main opponent is something that I think all populists are going to say in one form or another. Crooked, well, you, you remember, you remember that, that, that phrase. So that's one thing. And the other thing that is maybe less obvious, but even more dangerous in my view, is that populists are going to suggest that all those who do not fit or disagree with their, in a sense, symbolic construction of who the real people are supposed to be, that with all those citizens, you can basically put into question whether they truly belong to the people at all. So on both levels, you get exclusions, you get, again, a certain kind of anti-pluralism. Anti now that, on one level, is anti-democratic. So in that sense, to finally answer your question, yes. um, <laughs> it is something that is not part of the normal democratic game. Having said that, 
I think it's wrong, though, to then simply say, okay, and the obvious conclusion is we should, we should basically keep them out of the game entirely, in the way that some countries would say, of course we keep fascists out of the game entirely. I mean, if you look just a bit south of here, uh, a country like Germany does have explicit laws and provisions to basically ban parties which are identified as, you know, more or less, more or less, more or less fascist. Um, I don't think that should happen with populists. Um, for one thing, it's a mistake to basically default into a kind of total refusal of engaging with them. Why? Because if, for instance, in the parliament you say, look, we're not even talking to you, whenever you pose a question or want to have a debate, you know, we're all kind of you know, blocking it completely, what you end up doing is you basically, on one level, deny representation to all the people who voted for this party. And not everybody who votes for a populist party is a populist themselves. People vote for all kinds of different reasons. And, I mean, maybe a slightly cliched example, but let's imagine somebody who votes for Marine Le Pen and says, look, all the stuff that she says, you know, that sounds so exclusionary, it's not really my thing. But, you know, her ideas about how to revive industry in the north of France, <laughs> I'm fully on board with that. Yeah. And what she says about peasants, I'm on board with that. That's I, a bit cliched, forgive me. Um, so that person is entitled to a debate about industry in France. And if you simply say we're going to block everything, in a sense you, you're kind of keeping that person entirely out of, the, out of the democratic game. So that I think is wrong. But talking with populists does not mean having to talk like populists. So <laughs> you don't have to accept the way they want to talk. You don't have to accept the way that they describe certain challenges and problems. You don't have to kind of you know, copy their framing. This is, of course, the thing that so many actors in Europe have done, you know, the sort of going from one extreme to the other, initially saying, no, you know, they're the dirty children, they, you know, they should be kept out entirely. And then one day they say, oh, actually, no, they're completely right about describing <laughs> all the problems. Yes, immigrants are the problem, etc." And I think that's, that's a fateful mistake. So long story short, forgive me for doing what many professors do, which is to slip into lecture mode. Um, uh, that's I would, what we're here for. <laughs> uh, well, I'm not sure that, you know. Um, I would, I would say that, yes, it's not, not, it's not politics, it's not democratic politics as usual. And I think it's important to understand that. And it's important to understand that democracy has to be pluralistic and that this kind of inbuilt anti-pluralism of populism means there is a danger. And these are not actors like other actors in a democracy. But it doesn't follow from that that we should simply sort of take out the repressive toolkit which some democracies developed in the 20th century, when they ended up saying, we have to ban, let's say, a communist party, we have to ban a fascist party, we have to go for a total exclusion. If, if you look, how, what yet did, what is populism come out? It's almost 10 years by now, isn't it? Not, not quite. Uh, we're all getting older, but it's actually, <laughs> it's only, it was only, only came out in 2016. Yeah. But it does feel like we've been having this debate for a long time. And please believe me when I say I wish it was over. <laughs> no, but what I was thinking is that when, that if you look at the populist today, because I remember we were sitting here talking about the book at the time and discussing how we should see Corbyn in that light. He's out of the picture now. But it seems to me that populists have changed in Europe over the last five or, or six years. And to a certain extent, you have this sigh of relief. Well, Georgia Meloni, she came to power in Italy. She's not a friend of Russia. Uh, or, and you see she, uh, Marine Le Pen in France. Luckily, she's more 
she's more democratically minded, more pluralistically minded than her father, Jean-Marie uh, Le, Le Pen, when, when he won in 2002 or came to the, to, to, to the final round. So, so they are getting closer to power and they are getting closer to the political consensus and there's a kind of double reaction. On the one hand, there's a sigh of relief that they are actually being influenced by the other political parties and by political consensus. But there's also a, a very slow shock evolving inside of me, which is they're very close to power now. It was in 2000 and, was it 2001, the French election? It was 2001 with uh, Jacques Chirac versus Le Pen. 2002, but... 2002, yeah, and, and in, in, in 2027, we'll have the next. And it's not unlikely that Marine Le Pen will win that election. She could be the next president. How do you see this mainlining, mainstreaming of the far right in Europe? Yeah, it's very interesting what you say, because read a little bit more negatively, one could say this says more about us and the lowering of our expectations. So to say that, oh, this is great, she's not an outright Holocaust denier. Oof, what a sigh of relief, fantastic. Uh, Meloni does not immediately, you know, uh, mobilize troops for Putin. Oh, what a relief. Um, I think that's, this says more about, in a sense, how our expectations have evolved over time. And I wouldn't necessarily say that these actors have been influenced by other parties. I would say other parties have been influenced by them. Because if you look around Europe today, and you kind of hinted at this in, at the end of the question, I think a very strong trend, and many of my colleagues I think would, be, would agree with this, is indeed the mainstreaming of the far right. That in a certain way, what used to be considered so-called mainstream, center-right, conservative actors, either are willing to do coalitions, or they are copying the rhetoric of the far right. Think back to last year, in France, uh, Valérie Pécresse, the goldest candidate, you know, this is as mainstream as it can possibly get in the Fifth Republic in France, basically gave a speech where she more or less said that the conspiracy theory of the great replacement, you know, somebody sends Muslims to Europe to replace the populations and so on, was sort of correct. And then there was an outcry and she kind of tried to walk it back the next, the next day. But this would have been unthinkable for a long time. And of course you can't really walk it back. If you basically tell your nice bourgeois um, voters uh, who would never want to vote for Le Pen uh, and who basically are thinking that, you know, look, I, I would never buy into a conspiracy theory and so on, that actually there's something to that, you can't really take it back. And once the dam, the dam has broken, you know, the flood, the flood is there. So I think that is sort of one of the truly, truly worrying trends. And one thing I would add uh, that maybe isn't so obvious, is that if you look at some of the empirical evidence, and here, forgive me for being, again, being so professorial, but a book came out this year by a former colleague called Larry Bartels, uh, and the book has the very telling title, Democracy Erodes from the Top, because he's been looking at opinion surveys in Europe, and his conclusion is, if you study sort of, you know, hot-button topics that tend to work very well for right-wing populists, so immigration, refugee policy, what do you think about the EU? His conclusion is that in many countries, there are certainly not any dramatic shifts. So contrary to this kind of image that people still operate with, populist wave, which suggests, you know, this is sort of kind of crazy, unstoppable movement, there's a kind of dynamism, this is grassroots. Contrary to that image and framing, what he's showing is that actually what has really changed is something else, and that is elite behavior. It's the willingness 
of, again, more or less conservative, more or less established center-right actors to say, we can live with them, we can work with them, or at least we're going to copy them in certain ways. And interestingly, if I may add, even if you look at the countries where nowadays people tend to say, but look, you know, aren't, for instance, populations in Hungary and Poland really illiberal in terms of, you know, they don't want refugees, you know, they really have a totally different approach, uh, which, by the way, often for, for Western Europeans is very convenient because then, you know, the next thing is to say, ah, but, you know, we don't like what Orban and Kaczynski are doing, but, you know, these Eastern Europeans didn't have enough time to really understand democracy, and plus <laughs> they never had multiculturalism anyway, never mind the Habsburg Empire, um, and, you know, it's just different, you know, and, and so on. We don't have to worry all that much. Contrary to these sorts of cliches, what Bartels also shows is that, yes, you can find these attitudes today, but they are not the cause of the Orban and Kaczynski governments. They are the effect. If you basically subject your citizens, day in and day out, to, to put it bluntly, a certain kind of propaganda, and you're in power, like Orban has been by now, for 13 years continuously, and you control more or less all the media, then yes, it's going to have an effect in public opinion. But this sort of idea that, no, this really came from, from the grassroots and people wanted all this and so on, empirically is just, is just wrong. And in that sense, it, it makes it all the more worrying in a certain sense. Um, at the same time, you might say, well, it's maybe not such bad news because maybe some of us, maybe some of you in this room actually have access to some of these elite actors <laughs> and on occasion might signal to them, I'm watching you and I don't like some of the stuff that you're doing. One last footnote, if I may. Sure. Because um, you might, because we've been talking so much about contrast with the 20th century, which is always helpful, always important. Um, but it's also always important not to kind of too easily maybe reach for sort of cartoonish images. I myself sort of earlier on said, okay, 20th century, very repressive dictatorships, very brutal. No doubt true. But think back to last year when we were talking a lot about 100 years since the March on Rome. And we sometimes forget that, yes, of course, there was a march on Rome, but Mussolini did not march on Rome. <laughs> Mussolini arrived very comfortably by sleeper car from Milan because what literally would have been called liberal elites in those days had basically invited him in and had said, look, you know, it's such a mess in terms of, in terms of different governments here. Why don't you give it a try? And they actually governed very happily with him for the first two or three years. Also. So this kind of, if I may put it very bluntly, betrayal by certain elites is not completely, is not, is not completely, is not completely new as a, as a phenomenon. Something that does strike me as new among the populist parties in Europe is that in Western Europe, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure about uh, Eastern Europe, but what you see in, in Germany, what you see in, in, in Holland, what you see in France, is that the green transition is becoming almost as potential uh, as as potent for them as immigration was was earlier in Germany, where where I wouldn't say that the green transition is going too fast in in Germany, but the forces against this all the way from from the tabloid papers to 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 the AfD in Holland, the biggest party. In there was a local there were local elections with the biggest party in all 12 regions of the country was an anti-climate uh, climate party. And I think they're so good at picking up on, on this issue from, from, an, from animal welfare to, 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 to climate. And 
I, my fear at the moment is that this will stall uh, the green transition in, in, in Europe. I mean, uh, Robert Habeck, who was here half a year ago, is one of the best climate politicians that we have in, in, in Europe, grew out of grassroots, very, very thoughtful guy, has political experience. How do you, how do you see this anti-climate potential for, for the populists? So very good, which is just an extremely difficult question. Um, I'm reluctant, I mean, you'll be shocked to hear this. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm not an expert on 183 countries. No. So I'm slightly reluctant to say, yes, and the so-and-so party in this, <laughs> in this country, you know, I, I'm going to explain everything to you. Um, but I think there are sort of, in a sense, what makes it more difficult is that right-wing populist parties can react in various different ways. And I think we're probably in a phase where they are trying out different strategies, how to make this topic work for them. Some are trying a strategy where they basically don't have to deny everything, but they're simply going to say, and look, you know, what is going to be the result? The result is going to be that all the people from the South are going to try to come here. And that's all the more reason for us to close our borders, you know, basically be extremely repressive in defending our nation states in a certain, in a certain way. A second strategy, and it's one that someone like Habeck is very much exposed to, is the old popular strategy of saying, look, you know, the <clears throat> arrogant elites who are kind of telling you what to do and how to live and, you know, who are always lecturing you like this. That's not new. Um, it's maybe interesting in this context to also, again, footnote if I may, uh, to point out that, of course, not all elites are the same. When people say, oh, populists <laughs> are against elites, it's always worth pedantically adding that elite is not a homogeneous phenomenon. So think back... Um, at the risk of you know, post-traumatic stress disorder, think back to when Trump presented his cabinet. And people very quickly said, look, combined worth of $4.3 billion, if I remember the figure correctly. These guys are like the people, really? This is sort of you know, the pitchfork rebellion? But interestingly, all these people were pretty much figures who had sort of supposedly made their own money. None of them were professionals in the sense of lawyers, doctors. I mean, Ben Carson is a doctor, but very special case, <laughs> if I may say so. Um, and of course, no professors, okay? Um, so it's, it was professionals who basically claim authority on the basis of education and special training, uh, and who then lecture people on how to live, who are the target for populist. Rich people don't necessarily have to be the target. It's okay, especially if you can tell a nice story about, you know, I've made my money, you can make your money, and, and, and so on. Um, but it fits into this tendency now to basically say, oh, the Greens, you know, they're so repressive, they, they're constantly prohibiting things, you know, they're constantly lecturing you from this high, you know, kind of moral position, etc. And I think that has unfortunately worked very well as, 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 as well. But it's not completely impossible, it seems to me, that there is a third strategy or a sort of space that they haven't really explored yet, where they say, actually, we don't use climate to basically do our usual culture war strategy. We're actually going to go with it and maybe come to conclusions which are quite authoritarian in certain ways. <laughs> But as long as we're going to be in power and as long as we can use that for our legitimation in certain ways, That is maybe not a, not a bad thing. And in a certain way, that's what I would be most worried about. Because all the other ones, we kind of have a sense of how they work, which doesn't mean we always know how to push back. But that's sort of the more or less tried or tested way of be doing populism. If they could somehow adopt it and make it work for them in certain ways, that would be much more dangerous. 
and they could find some kind of inspiration for that out east. This is kind of, you know, this is saying, well, this is a growth uh, model. This is something that will make a new industry. And this is, to a certain extent, what China is doing. But also, if you, again, if you think back to the 20th century, there were plenty of right-wing, far-right, in fact, fascist actors who, in some sense, you know, could be said to have had a sort of body of quasi-ecological thought. Yeah. And, you know, whose slogan was certainly not, we're going to exploit nature to the hill, we're going to destroy everything, but who then tied that, you know, in quotation marks, ecological agenda to purification of the people, uh, to projects of internal colonization, but in line with basically ecological imperatives, external colonization as well, of course. I'm just saying, I think there are precedents for what the right can also do with these topics, and it would be dangerous if one simply said, oh, that could never be revived or that could never happen. But And, and now we're, we, we've painted a picture that is not as optimistic as Daublet Information usually is. Uh, so we're in a kind of you dark place. the wrong guy. <laughs> no, but... but But actually, looking at Democracy Rules, this book, this is not a pessimistic book. This is, to a certain extent, a, a challenge of what we could call an intellectually lazy kind of pessimism that's out there. This notion that democ democratic recession is something that's taken place and democracy is, is in a crisis. Tell us about the premise for, for, for this view that is opening the book. So the distinction I tried to put in place was, on the one hand, You can be an optimist or a pessimist, but that's not quite the same as being hopeful. It's basically a riff on what Martin Luther King famously said, that optimism, pessimism is a kind of judgment of probabilities. What do I think is going to happen? Well, again, shocking news, I don't know what's going to happen. <laughs> And I don't, I'm not in the business of, uh, of predictions, especially not about, especially not about the future. Um, but hope is a matter of saying, in principle, it's possible as opposed to a situation where you say, look, you can't even see a possible way out. It's really impossible. In which case you might say, well, it's another way of saying probability is zero because you can't see any exits from a certain, from a certain problem in the, in, in the present. And what the book was trying to do, for better or for worse, was to say that, yes, there are many, many, many reasons to be very worried today, but some of the paths forward are visible and one can figure out what they might be and what it might take to kind of take these take these paths and what we have to think about maybe renovating certain institutions how we should basically rem remind ourselves of the fact that and this really is a difference with certain um, decades in the 20th century people have not given up on democracy as an idea in this context is it does matter that even beijing wants to be claiming the word democracy it does matter that you know if you go to Today's, you know, right-wing authoritarian populists in power, they, of, they, of course, will say, we're actually the better Democrats, because unlike the liberals, you know, we really yeah. sort of listen to, I mean, all the usual propaganda you will, you will hear. And that still matters, that, you know, people have not officially given up on this. And if you had sort of talked to people in the, in the early 30s, of course, many people would have said officially, for the record, no, it's bad. Syst you know, the system doesn't work. We also don't really believe in these values. So that is a different, different scenario than if we were in a world where people really had said, you know, let's abolish all parliaments, that doesn't work, uh, let's restrict the right to vote again, you know, things, I mean, things one could imagine, but which fortunately we're not hearing today. And, and <clears throat> another thing that I really liked about the book is that there is this notion of polarization, which is, which is like, 
polarization is bad and we must engage in some sort of national healing. It's almost a communitarian kind of kitsch that we should embrace one another and we should agree on everything. Saying, well, and you say, well, polarization is not in itself bad. You cannot have democracy without, uh, w without conflict. Can you elaborate on that point? So again, I would, I would insist pedantically on a certain distinction. So polarization is a very specific thing. And you might say if you have situations of genuine polarization, that can be an alarm signal. If you basically have two parts of the population which become internally very homogeneous, uh, we don't really see ways of resolving conflicts without one side feeling that they can't afford to lose in the game. Um, and again, as, as the past couple of years have really taught us the hard way, we always have to think about what losers in a democracy do and how they think about their position and their long-term prospects and so on. It's kind of... It's kind of Uh, generally underestimated phenomenon, you know, what, what should losers in a democracy think? And we've, you know, seen what some losers have done on January 6th, 2021, on January 8th, 2023 in, in Brasilia. Um, but, if, but if you basically have a highly polarized situation where losers feel, you know, so much is at stake in these elections, we're such a divided country, our side is in existential danger, which is basically the kind of situation that populists want to create in order to get reelected, that is dangerous. I wouldn't deny that. But I would distinguish between polarization and conflict. And what is fateful, and it's especially bad in the US, but I think it's also true in Germany, for instance, is that you have this sort of, indeed, very kitschy communitarian talk along the lines of, why can't we all get along? Uh, we should be more civil again, and, and you know, ideally, democracy should, about, should be about consensus. First of all, if you think back in history, I mean, nobody who would have been around in, let's say, the 60s in Germany and had listened to what uh. Christian Democrats said about Willy Brandt would have said, oh, this is such a wonderfully civilized place. Um, no, it was, you know, it was really tough in the way that people talked about each other, but that was not the end of democracy. Um, the difference is really between a situation where we have very tough conflicts and very tough disagreements, but we don't deny the standing of the participants in these disagreements. And if you think back, that's more or less what I was trying to say about what populists are doing. They're basically saying, no, you're corrupt, you're crooked, you don't really have standing in our debates or in a certain way you don't really belong at all. I mean, again, this is, forgive me for bringing this up again and again, you can see how traumatized I am. Um, <laughs> think back to all the instances when Trump <laughs> was criticized. Any quote-unquote normal politician in government would have said, look, I'm elected. These are the policies. These are ju the justification. And in a couple of years, you have a chance to elect somebody else. Okay, maybe Trump would not have said that. But um, <laughs> that was, in a sense, the normal <coughs> defense of, you know, what you want to do. So often, Trump would simply react to criticism by saying, if you criticize me, you are un-American. Now, that's not a way in which you can do democratic conflict, because there's nothing to talk about. If, if, if the other side doesn't really belong, has no legitimacy, what's the point? Of, of having any kind of conflict. Um, it can't possibly be productive to pick up this term from earlier in our discussion. Now the same, I mean again, not to make it too easy for ourselves, the same you might say though is also true if you have a situation when you also have no common factual basis. So 
if we go back to climate and I'm telling you that, look, the whole thing has been engineered by the Chinese to destroy our industry and so on, I dare say we're also not going to have a productive conflict. And that's, of course, I don't need to lecture you about this as, as, no. as a distinguished journalist. That, of course, is a much harder challenge because, you know, there's such a gray area in terms of are we really talking about similar facts or not? That's not that, obviously, that is, that is not easy. But these are the conditions for saying, yes, we can have, you know, even very tough conflicts where we even might call ourselves, call each other names to some degree. That's okay. Um, but we don't deny the legitimacy of the other side and we don't just make up stuff in order to, for our side to win. We have some sort of understanding that we're talking about the same issues. We have some kind of understanding of what the basic facts in play, in play, in play might be. And then, arguably, it also becomes easier for losers in a conflict to say, okay, we're going to get another chance. And then, you know, maybe the outcome is going to be different. Looking at, I, I remember just before the pandemic that, or, or be, When the pandemic hit, we were thinking, well, this is reality. Now, now the facts will be convincing by themselves. Now Donald Trump will have to surrender to facts, and, and his followers will have to, to, to surrender to facts. And in Europe, I was actually surprised to see that the pandemic did not mean a, a big uprising for the populists here. There were, there were radical protests, but they were marginalized. You didn't see big big uh, leaps in the polls for populist parties in, 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 in Europe. And that it, I had the feeling at the time that actually we were able to establish some kind of common factual ground. And that wasn't, I don't think that was because or in spite of the media. I think that, that news and knowledge of the pandemic traveled all over the world. So you could see even in Brazil, where the president was denying it, you would see people demanding it, people demanding it. It was kind of all over the world. People knew what the pandemic was about, what to do to avoid spreading it. What's the lesson to be learned from the pandemic when it came to, I, I, I was surprised to the extent that we, the global we, succeeded in establishing common factual ground here? I'm glad you asked that because this gives me a chance to unpack my three-hour lecture about the right lessons from the pandemic that we didn't learn. Um, <laughs> so just briefly about Trump and Bolsonaro, or TB for shorthand. Um, <laughs> of course, it was very tempting at the time to say, look, this proves what so many people have been saying about populism, the great simplifiers the people who can't deal with complex challenges. Look how they failed in government, and thank God they were voted out when people had a chance. Very comforting story, one that many liberals, in the really widest sense of that term, not specific Danish sense or, or French sense or anything like that, you know, like to tell themselves. Um, the other story, actually, they like to tell themselves is that, you know, even if you don't believe the story about the great simplifiers, if populists are against elites by definition, if that's all there is to it, once they're elected and part of a government, by definition, they have to stop being populist because then they have become <laughs> the governing elite. So problem solves itself, either because populists in government can't really be populist, or if it's true that they're always the great simplifiers who don't understand complex challenges, they will fail the way that Trump and Bolsonaro failed. Conclusion is the same. The problem will solve itself. And at first sight, Trump and Bolsonaro kind of fit this image in certain ways. But I think it's a mistake to conclude that therefore these sort of stories or these sort of diagnoses are, are correct. What is peculiar about both cases 
is that in a certain way, because of very particular circumstances, they could actually, in a certain way, govern against themselves, which I know sounds very paradoxical. Mm. But think about a system where you are the president, but your legislature is in the hands of the opposition. That actually allows you to say, look, I would love to do the right thing, but they're hindering me. And also imagine or think of the fact that both Brazil and the US are federalist systems. And in both countries, the president would basically say, I wish I could do the right things, but these governors in these individual states are doing the wrong thing. So in a way that would never be possible in a parliamentary system, and maybe this is actually another argument for why presidential systems are dangerous in a certain way, both these actors could be in power and yet be against their own sort of situation and, and sort of seemingly be the opposition at the same time. Now, that didn't turn out to be a winning, a, winning, a winning strategy in the end, but it also is then important to say, look, these were exceptions. And what was also exceptional was that, with all due respect, neither Trump or Bolsonaro had a great deal of experience with government, with governance, with how to run a complex administrative state. And the same is not true of Orban, Kaczynski, Modi, many, many other right-wing populists in power, who also very often failed and did bad things, Modi in particular, uh, in India. But it wasn't as crazy as, 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 I mean, none of them said, oh, you just have to, you know, basically inject disinfectant and that will do the trick. Um, that was not the response of these other actors. So, long story short, it would be a mistake to conclude from all this that, yeah, you know, the comforting story is true, you know, they're always the great simplifiers, they're basically irrational, we can all, you know, sit back and relax, it will always fail by itself, that's not true, that would simply happen to be true in, this, in these two particular cases. Um, and this very particular strategy of being in power and yet sort of seeming like the opposition at the same time only works in these very, very specific institutional contexts and would never have worked for, let's say, a government in Europe that needed a parliamentary majority to be behind certain measures, to agree on certain policies, and, as you say, basically be on board with certain facts. So that was the very short answer to the question. Now the lessons, <laughs> if you really want to know. Please, yes, I'm very curious you know, about this, uh, what to be learned about. I would, I would just say one thing, and maybe it's, it's, you tell me if it's of interest. Um, so I think one thing that in retrospect is curious is that if you think back to what many people said um, in spring 2020, there was a kind of sense that, look, this is, a, this is a truly collective experience for humanity. Everybody will have been involved in this. Everybody will have been not exposed to this in the literal sense of having, having gotten COVID, but it, it's, a, it's a really rare moment uh, where you say, you know, we are all in this together on one level. And then many people were immediately ready, and I'm guilty of this too, to spin this into a nice social democratic story about there must be some lesson of solidarity that comes out of this. But I think it's fair to say by now that that lesson has not come out of this experience. But I think it's partly because no crisis delivers its own lessons automatically. <laughs> Even if it seems obvious, it never is obvious. And I think it was a failure on the part of, of certain political leaders and certain political parties to kind of try to take these lessons and make something of them. Again, if we can go back to the 20th century for one second, um, in retrospect, it seems so obvious to us to say, look, 
the Second World War, Britain, the worker and the aristocrat both experienced the war. And that, that gives us the British welfare state because all of a sudden they realize they're in it together. But actually, they weren't really entirely in it together. Um, <laughs> the worker in the East End had a different war than basically the aristocrat, the lord, the count, who could go back to his manor in the, in the countryside. So the same with the pandemic, that you might say, look, if you're, if you're stuck in a really small flat you know, in your social housing, that's not the same as, you know, I'm sailing off on my super yacht uh, and, and, and I'm having a relatively nice, nice, nice pandemic. Um, all of that is true. But in the British case, there was a Labour Party which said, look, for all the differences, we're going to make this into a story that basically reinforces this point of existential danger that actually we did have in common in the end, despite the certain inequalities within the experience. And one could have imagined something similar coming out of the, coming out of the pandemic. But whenever at least I made this point <laughs> in, in the presence of politicians who were maybe not entirely irrelevant, they immediately came with the argument and said, look, this is almost obscene. How can you compare the person in, you know, 50 square meters in, in stuck, you know, in their, in their, in their little apartment uh, with, you know, other people who had totally different experiences? It's true, but it's not about these objective realities. It's about basically having the political skill and will to say, look, you know, we're going to still take this collective experience and take it forward to justify doing things differently. And I just don't see that anybody was either willing or able to, able, able to do that. And then you combine that with the fact, very understandable, that maybe, maybe many of us then also said, look, we want to leave this behind yeah. as, 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 soon as, as soon as possible. Uh, we don't really want to be reminded of all these, all, these, all, these, all these experiences. And the outcome is that already now, it, again, it feels like it's the most recent past. And yet you feel like it's, it's, it, it already feels strange and kind of almost ghostly in certain ways, even though, as everybody knows, it's not really over. And all of our you know, fellow citizens with long COVID, all the people who are still getting sick and so on, that's all still there. But it feels like it's a different era. I, I think, at least I, I like to think that we saw the capacity for collective action We saw that, and we saw that we were actually able to stop the entire machine of consumption and and doing things together and flying to the other end of the world. And and I think that will stay with us as an experience. We actually saw that it was possible. Of course, the afterthought to that is, it was only possible because it was promised to us this was just for a short while before we could go back to, to normal times. At the moment, I thought this is a revolutionary moment. I think that very often, and it never happens. But but I realized, well, this is just for the promise that you can go, but you can go back. But then, I, I still think, looking back, that what happened in the European Union with the big recovery uh, package that they made with uh, Angela Merkel, who changed her, her policy on fiscal policies in Europe 100%, and that was such a crucial moment. She can always say, we can have debt together. We must bear each other's responsibility. We cannot... The, the economic argument is that that debt will be our problem, but there was also a moral argument to that. Their suffering is our suffering as well. And I think the same thing happened in America when, when, when you saw the suffering of the millions of, of people who were uninsured. 
That was the moment when Joe Biden, he came from restoring the soul of America to saying, well, I will be Franklin D. Roosevelt. And I was like, you're too old to be Franklin D. Roosevelt. It took him 14 to 16 years. So I, I still think we will look back at it as a kind of political inflection point, don't you? Again, I don't do predictions, especially not about the future, but it's certainly plausible that two scenarios in the medium term, so of course now, of course I'm doing a prediction, uh, could, could come out of this. So one is a more negative scenario, because if you think back to the financial crisis, uh, there was also this assumption that, okay, the, the lessons are obvious, you know, more regulation, you know, this really can't go on, go on like this, but maybe, again, a certain complacency among social democratic actors who thought, oh, the lessons of the crisis narrate and offer themselves, but they never do. You need actors to be in there and basically fashion the lessons. And in the U.S. context, even though initially there was a sense that, okay, this is going to be good for the left, the opposite was the case. The people who really knew how to use this crisis and to tell a story around it happened to be the Tea Party. And the Tea Party, you know, eventually leads also to, guess who, Trump. So um, it, was, it was the sense that, you know, initially, okay, this is going to be obvious, things have to be different. Um, but in the end, they weren't that different. And what's more, there was, I think, on the part of many people, a sense, look, you know, they always told us that certain things aren't possible. The money isn't there to do this. The money isn't there to do that. All of a sudden, the money is there if you have to save the banks. And I think this contributed to a sort of underlying sense of, call it what you wish, cynicism, or, you know, the game really is rigged, or nothing is ever quite what it seems. And I think it's an open question to what extent what happened during the pandemic could lead to this scenario, or, as you're hinting, to a more positive one, where people say, actually, no, it is a return of politics in the sense of saying, no, we're not always constrained by these, these, these sort of parameters which technocrats will, you know, give us 10-hour lectures on, you know, why, as, as, as an economist, you know, I explain to you how it can only be this way, and if, if I disagree, I'm irrational, you know, back to the earlier story, um, why that is actually not the case. And it is a question of political will and to some degree also, also political imagination. And I think you're right that in the U.S., um, there has been a willingness, maybe more so than in parts of Europe, to go down this path, this more positive path, although again with, I dare say, a certain inability to really not just explain, because the president is not a professor, um, but to really kind of basically couch it in moral terms, to talk not just about you know, material benefits and uh, instead talk about freedom or moral values or other things. And maybe that's a general point, also back, I'm still worried about, you know, the young people that you referenced, referenced yes. earlier, um, which also maybe takes us back to sort of what's possible and how we should talk about things in a, in a, in a democracy. Um, so when earlier on I was saying, look, you know, we should, we should not set up conflicts in such a way that we didn't deny other people's legitimacy uh, or we kind of moralize issues in such a way that we simply end up saying these are evil characters and so on. That was not meant to suggest that we should somehow keep morality out of, out of politics. On the contrary, I think it's, it's dangerous if those who are specifically worried about climate always make it seem like this is a sort of issue of numbers and engineering solutions and 
If I don't agree immediately, you know, I'm going to be confronted with some super apocalyptic picture. If we think about a different transformation that happened in our lifetimes, which on some level was as challenging to bring about, given that it had to be a global one in a certain way. What I'm talking about is what is today often referred to as neoliberalism, yes. which everybody sort of in retrospect thinks, oh, yeah, it was obvious why this all happened in the 70s and 80s. But it was not obvious that it, would, that it would go this way. And it also required a lot of sort of global coordination about trade and rules and regulations and all this. And it was an enormous ideological project in a certain way. And many people would have, you know, who may have been sympathetic to it may have said, look, this is really hard to bring about. But it was brought about. But it was brought about precisely because it was not simply justified in material terms. Remember Mrs. Thatcher saying that the economy is the means. The goal is to change the soul, which doesn't sound very Thatcher, right? Um, <coughs> but there was a reason why she said that. Because she said we have to offer people a positive moral vision of being free, of being responsible for their own families, you know, all this sort of much more moral talk that made this an attractive vision. And my sense is that, you know, very often our climate discussions neglect that part. And, you know, true revolutions are moral revolutions. And unless you basically convince people that they should see themselves in a different light and become different moral agents, it can, it's very difficult, maybe impossible. But I feel, and it really, really means I feel, I have no empirical evidence. Um, I mean, it's almost Trump-like, right? So I feel it's different. I feel that crime is up. So, you know, take it for what it is. Um, that maybe some of that is underway. And that's that, you know, other things which would have been really hard to imagine, you know, what happened to smoking, what is right now happening to what we eat, um, kind of is all about seeing yourself as a different moral person. And that would be my, again, would be my little message, if I may, to your, to your uh, <laughs> young colleagues um, who you interact with, that you say, look, and all of that is possible in a democracy, because that's, that's the, the space you have to offer people a different moral vision of themselves in a certain way, without being coercive, uh, without, you know, delegitimating anything if they want to still act differently and, and so on. But that's sort of what is peculiar and good about our system. That is a beautiful, that, that is a beautiful way of, way of looking at it. I think there is another potential uh, with climate policies, which is very difficult as well, is that growing up in the 80s and the 90s, there was this worldview of democracies against autocracies. And uh, it was an absolute worldview, it was a real worldview of absolute opposites, and it was a moral worldview in a, in a sense that's not very good for us today, because in order to really combat climate change together, we must be able to deal with China, we must be able to deal with India, we must be able to deal with Brazil, we must be able to sit down with political leaders that we really, really don't really don't like and that we have there's so much against them and for every leader we can say something that to you and me is also absolutely unacceptable the work camps in the Xinjiang provinces in, in China we can think of a lot of things that 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 Modi is doing but I think climate change does have that potential that we share the same planet we have our disagreements and we can meet together and that is that too much of a hippie note this is becoming awfully like a therapy session for middle-aged men, you know. Yes, yes. For me in the 80s, yes, well, yes, for you yes. in the 90s, you know, what is your biggest trauma? Um, so on one level, of course, you're right. 
But the worry is that we can tell very similar stories about many other political hmm. situations. And it simply doesn't mean that anything follows automatically. Again, the pandemic is a good example where, you know, we seem to all be in the same boat, but did that really change fundamental inequalities? Well, as we know now, it made them worse in certain, in certain ways. And given that there's always a way for people to ask questions about, yes, it's, it's a question of who's going to bear more of the costs, and of course people want to bear less of the costs, I don't think it's a kind of, uh, I'm using the word again, but now in a, in a different sense, it's not a kind of trump that you can play internationally in any shape or form. What I would insist on, though, is that in those contexts where there might be a little bit of leeway, now also in an obviously new geopolitical situation, where everybody is competing to be, let's say, for instance, India's best friend, because it's become such a crucial country um, in terms of our you know, evolving conflict with, with, with China in particular, um, is again not to make these sort of preemptive concessions and not to kind of obey in advance and you know, any, everybody who now goes to Delhi doesn't even think anymore about possibly saying something about the Muslim minority and how Modi is basically now f feeling no constraints anymore as far as putting the leader of the opposition, I mean, not he personally, but basically having a situation where the leader of the opposition is thrown out of parliament. Um, it opened up space, just like during the Cold War, for national leaders who everybody is competing for, to get away with things that they shouldn't be getting away with. I know this can sound very moralistic, I know it's not easy, but so often people don't even try anymore and, and don't even sort of dare to say anything. And in retrospect, that turns out not to be a great idea. So I think, as, especially given that, as said earlier as well, how a lot of these actors want to be seen as good Democrats, uh, Modi all the time now says India is the mother of democracy. Of course, it's the largest democracy in the world, and so on. It's a mistake if the German chancellor goes there, others go there, and don't even make any noises about what happens inside, inside the country. End of sermon for the day. Yes, but, but, that, but, and, but that is a very, you know, that I think it's, it's very difficult to find out what's actually the lesson of the last 30 years. Because on the one hand, we have, at least in Denmark, felt that we had the right to moralize all over the world. And if, if we had the ambassador from Uganda, we should definitely tell how they should treat homosexuals as the first and the last thing. So just measuring this moral distance. So we could say we have been moralizing and, and uh, not with a lot of success. On the other hand, you could also say that we've been allowing everything. You know, we've been dealing with China. We've been making ourselves depending on China. We've been making ourselves depending on Russia. And we had this very, very nice fiction that if we only had a lot of trade with them, they would become politically like us. And what happened was that we actually became accessible to their political pressure. So we gave away political sovereignty. And what we gained were, was cheap energy, cheap production. We moved away some of the, some of the emissions from, from, from our own country. So it's very difficult for me to see what's actually the lesson. Because you could say we've been too moralizing. You can also say we've been too little. I think as a diagnosis, that's correct. At the same time, it doesn't follow that we should stop saying things. There aren't many good examples of situations where, yes, people really pushed for human rights, let's say, to pick up your example, and then 20 years later, they really, really came to regret it. Um, whereas there are many examples where 
in retrospect, one says, okay, I understand all the realpolitik reasons why one didn't push too much here and there, but it always came back to haunt us. I mean, this is, I mean, it's very cheap now to kind of criticize Angela Merkel left, right, and center in retrospect, but since you mentioned her, <laughs> um, it's, it's hard to avoid the conclusion that this was a very conscious choice to basically say, yeah, let's not say too much about Russia, let's not say too much about, about China, as long as German industry is happy, as long as our domestic constituencies are happy, we'll, we'll just go down, this, go down this path and create the dependencies, as by now everybody knows, of course, um, that then had very, very bad outcomes. So it's a little hard for me to see, you know, how the lesson doesn't on one level remain, that, well, whenever you can, you do say it. You do say it out loud. And yes, we understand that some of the people that, who we elect are under certain constraints, But for instance, it doesn't prevent us. Of course, you can say it's cheap for us. Um, but if not us, then who? If not us, then who? But isn't there another lesson also that that we separated economic policies from what you would call value policies? That that we created incredibly fragile supply chains. That we had our we and we found out about that. I think the broader public during the pandemic, we couldn't even fabricate our own. Own mass, that we created these supply chains that made us very vulnerable to pressure from a lot of other regimes. And it's not a difficult exercise that we're doing now in the European Union, and that I applaud, that we multiply the, the, the supply chains. And I think here is a real, the potential for a real change that, that economic policies are supposed now to enhance political goals, and that markets are not goals in themselves, but that we've learned that, that in order to produce the benefits that we all need, we must have different economic policies. Isn't this a real change that we see at the, at, at the time now? I agree. I mean, that, that is sort of the revalidation, if you like, of a certain primacy of politics. On one level, you might say, well, actually, of course, markets, despite all the talk about free markets, of course, also markets need politics. Somebody needs to construct them, constrain them, basically, you know, surveil them in certain ways. Uh, they, they need to be states. But neoliberals, you know, wanted certain states that do certain things and don't do other things. And indeed, plenty of actors, as you also say, were willing to have this trust that, yes, globally, it's good for everybody. So why would it ever change? Or why would sort of politics reassert itself in a very negative way, because, you know, somebody might go to war when, you know, we could explain to him, for Putin, that actually this is not good, you know, for, for Russia, and so on and so forth. Again, forgive me one more time, if you go back to the 20th century, of course, it's a lesson we could have learned a long time ago, that, again, all, what, all these things that appear to be automatic, trade makes for peace, or even early in the 19th century, yeah. Railway travel makes for peace because, hey, once people go to other countries and they learn how nice everybody is and that they're just like us, you know, no war is ever possible again. So it's not exactly new that, you know, we can, we can, we can you know, basically conclude that we shouldn't put blind trust in interdependence or travel or trade as somehow automatically stabilizing things or, as we've learned the hard way last year, making military conflict impossible. Well, I have just uh, one last question, uh, Jan, is that on the one hand, we often have the feeling, at least I do, that, you know, that, that the world has turned out in a different way that we wanted it to turn out. That it's not that we wanted 
the rich to become so extremely rich than they are today. It's not that anybody really defended plutocracies in, in Western democracies. It's not that anyone said, well, let's take the risk with climate change. Let's see what happens. We're not totally sure. Let's see what happens. On the opposite, people said, well, we're going to fix it. We're going to fix it. So at times, I feel like public discourse is just a kind of music. It's a kind of way of entertaining us, making us believe that we're part of uh, the formation of, of, of uh, collective will and we're doing politics together. And then you see the real power actors. They're in a totally different realm. At times, we feel like we're just playing chess next to the battlefield, pretending that it's important for the battlefield, but actually it isn't. Uh, but then on the other hand, you see people like Thomas Piketty, how their ideas have really changed policies. You see Sushanta Zuboff, her concept of, of uh, surveillance capitalism. You see a professor like Barry Lynn in America, whose thoughts on supply chains have been brought to the, to the, to the Biden administration. On the other hand, I feel like this is kind of an intellectual golden age. H how do you see the power of ideas today? We have five hours left. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, as long as there have been intellectuals, there have been laments about the end of intellectuals. It's very rare for somebody to say it's a golden age for intellectuals. I mean, almost nobody ever says that. Um, and I'm not sure it is a golden age. I think it's a golden age for a certain kind of politically engaged expert. But I think it's not quite the same as an intellectual. Um, intellectual, I would say, is still somebody who, above all, tries to sharpen people's moral sensibilities. It's, it's much more at the level of worldviews more broadly. And you know, now it's me kind of maybe <laughs> defaulting into sort of golden age nostalgia. Again, it's a therapy session please, we're having please here. Please do. Um, you know, in, in the old days, there were times when people in, in the US would have said, no question has truly been settled until John Dewey has said something. <laughs> And I think it's still to some degree true in Germany that people say no question has truly been settled until Jürgen Habermas has said this or has said that. And I think that's a good, in many ways, that's a good thing. It is a good um, thing. But I think what we're seeing today is much more an issue of here are people who, you know, heighten our consciousness about a very, very specific problem, or maybe more problematically, kind of promise a certain fix or solution. And the first is very good. It's very good, obviously, that economists are saying, look, you know, I have the data on what has really been happening with inequality. I also have ideas about you know, how things could be, could be done differently. But this is not about sharpening our moral sensibility in general. And maybe that actually goes back to what you also said, that in a certain way, there isn't really much of a moral question here. Because there isn't anybody out there who really says, okay, inequality, let's go for it, it's great. You know? um, nor is there anybody who really seriously says, yeah, Putin is actually right, you know, this is a great idea, we should all agree with it. Um, so in that sense, it's, it's, not, it, it, it's sort of good news that it doesn't come up as an immediate moral question where people might really say, I'm, I'm, un, I'm really unclear what on a basic normative level I should think about this. Um, so in that sense, it's a bit different than I think what intellectuals did in different, different ages. On the downside, I think one can have some issues with the fact that we also live in the age of the TED Talk. Um, it would have been hard to imagine, again, this is all nostalgia, I know, uh, Jean-Paul Sartre saying, okay, I'm going to do a TED Talk and, and sort of tell you about existentialism and how you can be really free in 12 minutes or less. 
Um, because TED Talks and all these other formats, including the ones where we now know that basically Silicon Valley actors want to have their own universities, right? I mean, this is yeah. not my imagination where you, they basically say, I'll read the book, then I fly in the author, get a private tutorial, you know, see what they really think and so on. Um, all of that has a certain value. I don't mean to belittle it. But what is distinctive is that it's always about the fix and the solution. You cannot appear in front of, you know, let's say Silicon Valley actors or on TED Talks if you don't have a solution. And some of us still have this very, very old-fashioned idea that sometimes it's also okay just to be critical and not have a solution. And simply to say, let's sharpen a certain consciousness for some of our blind spots, for some of the things we got wrong, some of the lessons like, you know, we could have learned, what we haven't learned. I think that retains a certain value. And if we only look to so-called thought leaders, <laughs> in and of itself a telling term, it sort of is always about, yeah, but where's the solution? Give us the solution right away. And again, I'm not completely against that. It's, of course, great if people have certain, certain ideas about how to do things differently. But let's not forget that more old-fashioned stuff on the side. Well. We shall never forget that more old-fashioned stuff. Okay. Thank you, Jan Vernamula, for coming here again. Thank you. And thank you for you for coming out tonight. Det her var så min samtale med Jan Werner Müller. De tre bøger, vi refererer til, er Kampen om demokratiet, Populisme, Demokratiets styre. De er alle tre udkommet på informationsforlag. Og hvis man går ind på butik.information.dk, så kan man købe bøgerne derinde. Og man kan faktisk, hvis man køber dem der som abonnent, få sig en ikke ubetragtelig rabat. Det her var som sagt den sidste langsomme samtale for denne vinter- og forårsæson. Vi vender tilbage i august med en samtale med den helt fantastiske israelske tænker Eva Illus, der kombinerer studiet af vores følelsesliv med studiet af kapitalismen. Det kan man kun glæde sig til. Den her samtale var som de seneste produceret og redigeret af vores gode ven, kammerat og hjælper, Mads Adam Vener. Mit navn er Rune Lykkeberg. Jeg ønsker jer alle sammen en rigtig god sommer. <tryk>